Thank you for listening to a Praise Chapel Kingman podcast. If you need any information about our church, or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at praisechapelkingman.com. Amen. Isn't that exciting to hear about what's going on in Malawi? Amen. Amen. You know, and I'm part of the reason I'm excited about that, other than the obvious that God is moving in that part of the world, is that we have a part of it and that we are involved in it. You know, um, that church, that particular church, um, in many ways, (coughs) would not be in existence if it wasn't for this church. And, you know, you have invested uh, finances in many, many different occasions, and it has made the whole thing happen, and God is doing great things. And I know that... uh, God's faithfulness extends to us because of that. Can you say amen? amen? Is that we've been a part and sown good seed into good ground. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans, and we will get to that here in just a minute. Um, I want to say a couple things before we get into our sermon. And the reason that I want to say these things, it's going to sound like a little bit of a disclaimer, but I want to put this out to you um, just for a moment because I, I, I really need your um, um, attention. Because listen, let, let me just share something with you. I've been in church a long time. Okay, I've, I've been going to church, really, if I look back in my history, I've been going to church all my life. Most of you know my testimony. I got saved when I was seven years old. I was just a little guy. And uh, the, the reality is, is I, I remember even before that, we were going to church. I don't know that I can remember a time in my life where my family was not involved in church. And so I've heard lots of sermons. Amen. Some really, really good. Some not so much. Okay, but I've also been where you're at, sitting in a chair in a church, sitting in a pew, listening to a pastor preach, and I know how easy it is to click out. Amen. To just be able to, you know, just come to a place where you go, man, that's really good preaching, love it, man, yeah, it's the Bible, yeah, right on, far out. Let's go have a cheeseburger. Okay. And so I'm not saying that you would ever do that because I know that you're all going to take notes today and that you are all intent on hearing the word of God. I say that somewhat sarcastically. Uh, Only because of the fact that what we do sometimes is we come into places where we feel like, well, hey, I've heard that. I've heard that. Well, today I believe that God has a message for you. And, and let me share this with you today. I believe that what we're going to speak about, and you can, you can see the, the title screen, the Healing the Orphan Heart. This is something that I believe God is speaking to this generation. Okay? And I believe this subject really does have an answer for what we're going through in life. See, I, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that for many of us, we're struggling. Yeah. Come, on. Come on now. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I, I'm struggling. The reality is, is there are issues and there are things that I'm struggling with and working out and, and trying to get through. But what I have felt like the Lord speaking to me and bringing into my life is these thoughts these things that we're going to talk about today in this sermon. So what I'm asking you to do is to not just shut off, but to, to say, okay, God, I'm going to locate 
myself. Because see, it's easy when you're doing good. How many know living for God when you're doing good is easy? It's easy. It's when we're not doing good that it gets a little more dicey. See, when, when the bills are paid and the job is going well and everything is happening and we feel good about life and all of that, it's easy to live for God because, quite honestly, it's the best life going. Okay? But, but it's, it's, something happens. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but something happens the moment the first storm cloud shows up in our life, there is a conversion. It's like, what? What is going on here? What happened? Where's all the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the abundance and all what's happened? And we go from what I call fair weather Christianity into desperation. And the problem is, is what happens is we start checking out on our belief system. You know, when we're doing good, God can do anything. When we're doing bad, we wonder if he really exists. Is that too real? And, and so here's the thing. I mentioned this to you a, a, a few weeks back in a sermon. I said part of the problem is, is most Christians are just skimming along the surface of Christianity. We're, we're kind of like, it's, it's kind of like if you could get this picture in your mind where God takes a real nice flat rock and he throws it and just hops across, hoping to get across the lake. Yeah. That, that's the picture of a lot of Christians. We're, we're just skimming across this, this, this pond, as it were. And God says, I've got so much for you. So much more than just getting the big toe in. Can you say amen? amen. Because look, at it in many ways, not in many ways, in all ways, our lives depend on it. Yeah. Are you hearing me? Yeah. We need this. So I'm asking you today in this sermon that what you do is say, okay, God, I'm going to be open to the thoughts that are presented today because I want to locate where I'm at in this because I believe you're speaking to me. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter number 8. We're going to be starting in verse 14. It's the verse of Scripture that we used the last couple weeks. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version this time. It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, in the last couple weeks, we began on Father's Day, and then the next week, uh, we looked at a couple messages that I entitled, The Father Heart of God. And I don't know if there's ever been a time in human history where we've needed a deeper and clearer understanding of the Father's heart more than right now. Now, there's no doubt that there has been times in history where that issue was presented before and people needed it. But listen, church, we are living in a fatherless society. 
Okay, we are living today in a society where fatherhood is greatly challenged. And it's not just fatherhood from the position or the context of men being fathers. It's from the context of people not having fathers and the fallout that comes as a result of that. See, I believe so much of the struggles, the wounds, the dysfunction, the destructive habits and hangups of our life is a direct result of becoming so distant from the father. Now, let me tell you something. There are a lot of things that can distance you from the Father. You can, let, me, let me just say this to you. You can be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and still be distant from the Father. Yes. Amen. It's a true statement. But listen, one of the things that we know for sure is that sin separated us from God. It distances us. Sin distances us from the life of God. It stunts our growth, and it dulls our hearing, and it limits us. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, the picture of that is almost as if God is repelled by our sin. That's not God. Let me tell you something. God is not afraid of sin. Come on. He's not up in heaven going, ooh, I can't touch that. That's spooky. That is not the picture of God. It's what sin does to us. Listen to the verse. Your iniquities, they separated you from God. Your sins hid his face. God did not hide his face. Sin blocked your view. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And it dulled your ability to get your message or your voice to him. See, when sin entered the world, man became orphaned. See, Adam and Eve were not created orphans. They were created as children with a father, and they enjoyed that relationship, but they became orphans the moment they left the presence of God and embraced sin. And that reality has plagued the world from the very beginning. Literally what happened is sin released into this world a spirit. Our text calls that spirit the spirit of bondage. Other translations call it the spirit of slavery. And so it's not much of a great stretch to call it in context the orphan spirit. And there is no doubt that at some level or another we are all affected by it. See, we live in a world that is a world of orphan people. And these are people who compete and fight to get ahead. They labor and they work for identity. They continually search for significance and they are always performing for acceptance, but never quite getting it. You ever rage for something on the counter? Maybe I, I've had this happen a lot in my life. When, when I was a Sears repairman, my job oftentimes led me to work on appliances that were underneath counters. Okay, and all the, a lot of the time I was down either on my knees or even on my belly. And sometimes, and most of the time, I would always leave the most critical tool that I needed on top of the counter. 
And so there I am down on the ground. And look at getting this body down on the ground. It's a chore. And so it, it takes a little bit of effort to get back up. So I would just try to get my big monkey arm up on the counter and try to reach for the tool. And I would never quite get it because every time I grabbed for it, it would push it a little bit further. That is the picture of much of Christianity. We're reaching we're fighting, we're searching, we're performing, but we're never quite getting it. And as Christians, we are sons and daughters of God. That is without question. Yet so many of us live as we, we are anything but children of God. We live, we think, we act like fatherless orphans because we have never truly embraced the love of the Father on a personal level. We've never, we understand it in a corporate level. John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But it's very hard for us oftentimes to say that God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son. That if John would believe in him, he should not perish but have everlasting life. That's very hard to translate that concept because that, that's like, well, that, 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 that makes me really special. Right. I'm not sure I'm that special. Now you got the problem. Right. Now you understand where we're at. Oh See, we think and act like we're fatherless, but it's, we never embrace the love of the father. And the storms and the setbacks and the disappointments of life have made us afraid to trust. It's made us afraid to trust and and afraid to let go, afraid to risk becoming vulnerable by believing God when he says, I love you. And the reason is, is because at the core of it, we don't even know if we love ourselves. Because oftentimes we feel unlovable and we find it difficult and impossible to believe that anyone else could love us, including God. Now, we can mentally ascend to it. We can give, we can articulate it. We go, oh, yes, 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 God loves me. And it comes out of our mouth. But look at church, it needs not to just come out of our mouth. It needs to come through the actions of our life. What you say you believe is not what you believe, but what you believe is demonstrated in the actions of your life. Are you catching that? See, God never created you to be an orphan. He created you to be a beloved son or daughter, listen, who has found a home in his embrace. Yet sonship eludes most of us. Think about this for a moment. When Jesus was getting ready to depart this world, he was leaving to go back to heaven, back to his father. And he begins to comfort the disciples, and he says these words to them. Pay attention. John 14, verse 16. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will never leave you. Never leave you. Say never. Never. Leave you. He'll never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world at large cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you do because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. 
See, Jesus, when, he, when he's getting ready to leave, he understands the impact of God departing a scene. He understands the impact of being his disciples being separate from him. So what does he do? He says first, he goes, I am not going to leave you orphanless uh, or be as orphans. I am not going to leave you comfortless, but I am going to return to you. I'm going to send my spirit and I'm going to be there and we will never leave you. He promised to send a comforter. Amen. That's good stuff. He promised to send the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and his job was to lead us into all truth. Well, what, one of the facets of truth that he leads us into is who we are as the children of God and who he is as our Heavenly Father. That's one of the things he's doing. But listen, there is a greater truth that we need to pay attention to in all of this. Is that not only does he send the spirit to help us, but the father. See, Jesus sends the spirit, but the father sent Jesus. And Jesus came for one specific overarching purpose. And that was to reveal the father. See, there's no doubt that he came to die. He came to take our place in death and to forgive us from, or to free us from the grip of sin and to make it possible for us to be forgiven. There is no doubt about that. But look at that is not the only reason he came. Listen to what I'm saying here today. He is telling us that he came. He came for a purpose and he came to show us what the father was like. Look at sin has has never been a problem for God. See, we get this thing, we get thinking that, oh, you know, sin is, God goes, sin, I can deal with that. Ain't a problem. What he was concerned about was the relationship. And remember, sin separated us. Sin undermined the relationship. It hindered the relationship. So Jesus was sent to restore relationship, to represent the Father, to show the world what the father was really like so that we would come back into relationship and what he had to do was deal with sin to get it done. Are you hearing that? Sin's not the problem. What the problem is is distance from the father. And we know that he came to die. We know that he came to do these things. But there was one supreme objective and that was to reveal the father and restore relationship because... Listen to me. In revealing the Father, there is a revelation of who you are and who God has meant you to be. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing about coming to know the Father. Because when you come to know the Father, you're introduced to who you are. And introduced to who you're supposed to be. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So much of the time in our struggles, we're looking for an effective answer or solution. We're looking into counseling and deliverance and even medical intervention. And none of those things are bad. Don't get me wrong. They have their place and oftentimes can be very helpful. But it is my belief that what we need is not another counseling session. We do not need another deep deliverance or even a medical intervention. What we need this morning is a revelation. We need a revelation because the orphan heart is not something that you can cast out. And believe me, many have tried. 
See, strongholds and vain imaginations and mindsets and ungodly beliefs have developed over a period of time, over a lifetime. <clears throat> you couple those things with misunderstanding and false information about who we are and who he is, you develop a, a, a culture and a sense of orphan thinking. Yes. All of a sudden, you start thinking like an orphan. And the only way out of that, the only freedom from that kind of thinking is revelation. Right. See, we're set free, church. By revelation, a revelation of the Father's love for us and the position he has given us. Oh, you, you missed a great place to say amen. I'm going to say it again. I'll read it. I'm gonna, it's right here in my notes. It's colored in red too. It says, a revelation of the Father's love reveals to us who we are and the position that he has put us in. Amen. That we need. That's what's missing. Now listen to me. What I did not say is that we are set free by information. By simply possessing info. We are set free by the repositioning of our heart towards revelation, the revelation of sonship. Listen, Jesus put it this way. John chapter 8, verse 32, he says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This word know here is a Greek word that means possess intimate knowledge of, to take in, to become a part of, to know through personal experience with. Now here, I want you to think about this for a moment. See, information is to knowledge or I should say information is to revelation what belief is to faith. Right. Wow. You went, whoa, wait, what does that mean? I'm going to explain it. Okay. Think about it for a moment. You can believe something all day long, but unless you act on it, it don't matter. Yes. Amen. I can believe that going to the gym is going to make me healthier. But until I act upon it, don't mean nothing. Amen. Listen to me. There's a lot of people that believe, but they do nothing about it. See, faith is when you take belief and you begin to alter your life by what you believe. See, information is just simply information. But revelation changes what I do with that information. It could be better said this way. Information reaches my head. Revelation motivates my heart. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That's why we need a revelation. Now I want you to stay with me in this mode of thinking because I want to show you how Jesus revealed all of this. If you remember in Matthew chapter 6, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus does. And he's teaching his disciples how to pray. But in it, he reveals a deeper understanding of who our father is and who we are. In Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 6, it says this. But you, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut the door, pray to your father who's in the secret place. 
And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the first thing that I see in this and that I notice is how often Jesus is referring to praying to our Father. He says, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. He says, pray. He starts off. He goes, pray to the Father. He didn't say pray to God. Pray to the majesty on the throne. He says, pray to your Father. And he says, and then your Father who sees in secret, he says, your Father will answer you. And then he goes on and he says, for your father knows already what you have need of. And then he says, pray your father in heaven. So throughout this verse, he's showing us it's a father that we're praying to. Then the second thing that I notice, he says, don't use vain reputations. In other words, you don't have to beg your father. God, please, God, please. God, you got to do something, Father, please, please, please. Can you imagine? Can you imagine your kids begging? Well, maybe you can't. We don't have to beg him. Why? He already knows. Now, we do need to ask him. Don't misunderstand. But we don't have to beg him. This idea of, I'm going to just beg and beg and beg. You don't have to. Go to him. He's your father. I remember probably a year or so, maybe even two years ago, I was driving down the road and I was struggling with a thought. And the thought that I was struggling with was out of the Bible, there's a verse in scripture that says this, that when a servant has done all that he's supposed to do, will the master thank him? And Jesus says, I think not. And I was troubled with that because I was coming into a place where, you know, God was kind of saying to me, thank you, John. And I'm like, that's odd. Why, Why would God thank me? Why? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Why would he think? So I was praying about that, and I was driving down the road, and I could tell you exactly where I was when God spoke to me. I was sitting at the corner of Airway and Stockton Hill Road, right, at, right in front of Smith's, just by Cracker Barrel. And I was sitting there at that stoplight, and I said, well, how can this be, God? Why, why would you thank me? And, and I said, look at the verse. You, you said, would a, will you even thank a servant? He goes, you're not a servant. You're a son. Amen. third thing I notice in this is he says, he, he, he says this in the prayer. He begins the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And the thing that I notice about that is that our Father who is in heaven has a kingdom. Yeah. Well, what does that mean to me? That means the government of the kingdom is based in family. <laughs> come on, this is good. It's a family business. It's a family kingdom. 
the culture of the kingdom is the culture of family. The nature of the kingdom is, the, is family. And if there's one overarching conviction that we should have, it's this, is once you leave the concept of family, you've left the concept of kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom of our God is a kingdom with a father, a holy father, a perfect father, a father who loves us with an everlasting love. Can you say amen? One of the things that I've been working on here at Praise Chapel is adjusting the culture of our church to be more and more kingdom oriented, to be more and more family oriented. But if we're all the children of God, and he is our heavenly father, then why is it so hard to be a family? Well, simply put, it's because we have gravely misunderstood and underestimated, or in some ways just plain did not know the power of adoption and the reality of sonship. When I was studying this message, I was looking through commentaries and studying and reading. And one, one thing that was common in all of them, all of the great theologians of our day, one of the things they said is the doctrine of adoption is one of the most overlooked doctrines in all of Scripture. And the reason is, is because for many it's just too good to be true. See, so many Christians are all doing the right stuff. Yet they're living and they find themselves in a place where there's no rest, no peace, no security. They live lives of quiet desperation, longing for acceptance and validation, fighting for identity, hoping for appreciation, performing for affection, craving assurance, and hungry for encouragement. And in so many ways, their wounded orphan heart continues to hold them back from fully giving themselves over to the loving embrace of the Father. The result is they become intense, agitated, driven, obsessed people who are continually fighting an unseen battle with a lie. They tend to live self-centered, self-consuming, self-absorbed, lives. It doesn't matter if it's success or failure. It doesn't matter if it is pride and ego or humility. It's all about me. See, I can be self-deprecating. I can get up and tell you how woe is me and how bad I am and I'm no good and I don't have any value and on and on and on and on and on and on. That's still self-centered because it's all about me. Or I could get up and tell you how great I am and nobody can touch me and I can't, you know, do any wrong and I can have an ego and pride and all of that. It's still all about me. See, humility today is not thinking bad about yourself. It's literally thinking less about yourself. This is where much of the battle comes from is this inner conflict, feeling like a failure, feeling distant from God, if not abandoned altogether. See, we constantly feel when we're in this place, we constantly feel like there's something more that I need to do in order to feel valued or affirmed or accepted or belonged, belonging. And even know that we can be dedicated Christians and we can have deep encounters with the Holy Spirit 
we continue to strive for what is already ours, hiding the feelings of frustration and agitation and restlessness, and you say, why is it? It's because we still possess an orphan heart. Yes. And we're thinking like an orphan. A man tells a story of being a foster parent for at-risk children. This man and his wife routinely opened their homes to kids who were found to be in destructive homes. The parents were often abusive or addicted or, in most cases, in jail. And these kids were in homes with no parental figure, especially a father. They were, in fact, orphans. And as this husband and wife opened their home, they noticed a common trait in all of the children that came to them. At the dinner table, these children would grab for anything and everything to put it on their plate, and oftentimes it ended in fights. And the reason they discovered was because most of these children lived in environments that required continual competing in order to have enough. See, orphans always strive. Orphans are always working. Orphans are always struggling for what is already theirs. Never trusting that there is enough. I'll use myself as an example. Because the difference between me and you is about one week. (laughs) Because I've had a week to study this. (laughs) One of the great struggles as a pastor is because, and, and whether you like this or not, pastors oftentimes measure themselves by numbers. It's horrible. It's wicked. It's wretched. And the reason why is you can have a thousand people and still never be successful. But nonetheless, we get caught in the numbers game. And then the tendency is to do a thing called comparison. And what we do is we compare, and what that leads us to is it leads us to a thing called jealousy. Because what we do is we look at other churches and we go, well, all the people are going there. Why? Why are they going there? What are they saying about me? There's not enough people in Kingman. Listen, Kingman and the surrounding area is probably around 65,000 people. Golden Valley, Kingman, Butler, Valley Vista, the mountains, about 65,000 people. And only about 3% of that go to church at any given time. Trust me, there's plenty of people in Kingman. Reminds me of Elijah who's sitting under the tree. He's whining, just kill me, kill me now, God. God goes gently, because he's a good father, shut up. I mean, I mean, be quiet. Get up. Go back to where I called you, because there's 7,000 people that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And see, the problem is, is what an orphan does is he begins to compare, and he gets jealous. And an orphan gets jealous because what he's doing, he's paying attention to what God's doing in somebody else, and he has forgotten to see what God's doing in him. And we begin to believe there's not enough. And so I need to manipulate and strive and struggle and I need to deceive if I need to. If I got to, man, I got by hook or crook, I'm getting them in here. (laughs) 
No, that would never happen. No, you're right. It wouldn't. And the bottom line is we're just not trusting there's enough. But listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, in the Amplified Version. It says, In God is able to make all grace, every favor and earthly blessing come in abundance to you so that you may always, under all circumstances, regardless of the need, have complete sufficiency in everything, being completely sufficient in him and have an abundance for every good work and act of charity. Wow. That's written to you. But then Jesus, he puts the icing on the cake in John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He says, but I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And in the Greek, it means the life as God has it and that without measure. That's what God gives to his children. Can you say amen? What must happen this morning is we must embrace the revelation of adoption where according to our text, we have become heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. It's interesting. When you're an heir of God, you know what your inheritance is? God. Not everything. You inherit God. Things are one thing. The author of things is another. You inherit God. And you become a joint heir with Christ. Are you catching that? We leave behind the lie that we're incomplete, unworthy, empty, lost, and lacking. And we embrace the truth that we have this incredible inheritance through sonship. Corinthians chapter 1 verses 11 through 13 say, We also pray that you will be strengthened with his glorious power so that you will always have all patience and endurance you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to God's holy people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the one who rules in the kingdom of darkness. And he has brought us in the kingdom of his dear son. There was a time when I was an orphan, but I've been adopted. I've been chosen to be his. Church, we live in an atmosphere of safety, blessing, and continual supply. And the father through Jesus came to heal our orphan heart. To make us a part of his family where there is more than enough for every occasion. See, Jesus, when he came, he revealed the Father (coughs) through very moving circumstances. Think about these with me just for a moment. The woman that was caught in the act of adultery, think about that. Here is a woman that is caught in the act. She goes from private passion to public spectacle in a moment of time. She's thrown at the feet of Jesus, and the law had her dead to rights. She was to be stoned. But it's only a father that defends his children. She was dead wrong. She deserved what the law said, but he stepped in, and he made a way where there seemed to be no way. The heart of the father rescued his daughter. The woman at the well who had been searching through relationship after relationship after relationship, came to her, and the heart of the Father said, I have something that if you drink the water I have, you will never thirst again. 
It was a demonstration of the father. Zacchaeus. You got to love little Zacchaeus, man. He's hiding up a tree. He's, he's a tax collector, collector. He's been wicked and he has ripped people off. But he's hiding. He wants to see Jesus. And Jesus, at the expense of his own credibility, says, come on down, Zacchaeus. We're going to your house for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> That's the heart of a father. Father, our God says, I'm not embarrassed to be your dad. Mary, Martha, the man with leprosy. He says, if you want to, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I want to. Blind Bartimaeus cries out. The disciples tell him, be quiet. And Jesus said, that's why I came. That's what fathers do. They rescue. They rescue. They make a way where there is none. And that is exactly what Jesus demonstrated. Amen. In Hebrews, look at, and listen to this, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It says, long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. Now, remember, you're a joint heir with him. And through the son, he made the universe and everything in it. The son reflects God's own glory. And everything about him represents God exactly. He sustains the universe by the might of his power and of his command. And he died to cleanse us from the stain of sin. He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God of heaven. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is what emanates from the Father. He is the perfect display of the heart and nature of our Father. But now as we wind this down, I want you to look at it just another way. I want to show you this through another facet. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 15, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 15 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Listen, a name reveals nature, doesn't it? See, in America, in our culture, names don't really mean a whole lot to us. We name people because we like the cuteness of a name. Amen. But back in the day, back in, in the first century and before, <clears throat> names represented something. People were